TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This episode is brought to you with support from Shutterstock and Lynda.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with interior designer Sheila Bridges about her career as one of the few African Americans in the field, about losing her hair, and about working for Bill Clinton. A lot of times, clients will look at something and think about it and then they want to see another 15 choices and then another 15 choices and I wasn't presented with any of that in dealing with the former president. Here's Debbie Millman. In 2004, interior designer Sheila Bridges had it all. A fabulous Harlem apartment, spreads in glossy magazines, a TV show, a retail store upstate, and then Sheila started to lose it starting with her hair. It's 2013 now, and Sheila Bridges has come out on the other side with an engaging and intimate memoir called The Bald Mermaid. It's about interior design, alopecia, and everything that came after. Sheila Bridges, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Sheila, I understand that one of your top 10 favorite books of all time is Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Is that true? That is true. (laughs) So why is that one of your all-time favorite books? I don't know. I think it's just uh, most Dr. Seuss books, I think, for most children sort of resonate, but then, you know, into adulthood as well. I have a room in my apartment uh, where I've painted a lot of words from various authors because I love books. And uh, the words from um, Green Eggs and Ham are actually painted on my wall. So, Your book, The Bald Mermaid, has just come out. It is a remarkable book. It is searingly honest. It is funny. It's poignant. It's heartbreaking. What made you decide to write a memoir? I don't know. I mean, I think initially the expectation was, you know, that I should write another design book. I uh, wrote my first design book about 10 years ago. And uh, at that time, I had a, a two-book deal to write, you know, a second book. But I, I couldn't get 
a second book published on design, strangely enough. And I think just sort of going through that process, it sort of made me reflect on my career and some of the things that are challenging. I think a lot of times when you're in the media in a significant way, particularly as I've been, you know, through magazines and also on television, I think there's always this assumption that, you know, things come very easily. So me wanting to do a book on color seems like such a a layup, um, if you will, and such an easy thing to sort of have happen. So, you know, in kind of thinking about that, reflecting on that, I just realized, you know, there are all these sort of stories and interesting things that have happened, you know, in my life, both personally and professionally. So instead of writing a design book, I decided to write a memoir. You begin The Bald Mermaid by describing yourself and you write, my newborn skin was the shade of cauliflower, my hair the color of ginger, and I had blue eyes. I wouldn't find out until much later in life that being born black and blonde would pose its own unique set of challenges. But within my first few hours, I caused controversy as a doctor tried to pry me from my mother's arms, insisting that a mistake had been made, that she had been given the wrong baby. Well, that story is true. My mother's, you know, told me that story so many times over the years, and she still, you know, sort of gets upset whenever she talks about it. I mean, I don't, I don't have children, but I can only imagine, you know, after you've just had a baby, and then someone, a doctor, decides that because the baby looks a certain way, that it's not your child, because obviously the doctor thought that I was white and my mother's black, and tried to take me from her. So. You go on to write that your survival in blackness as a child in Philadelphia was not dissimilar to your later survival in New York and Harlem in particular. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on what that meant and and what that means even still today. Well, I think, um, at least for me growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in the, I was born in the 60s and so in the 70s, uh, you know, race played a huge role uh, in my upbringing. And so, you know, I think because of that, a lot of times I didn't have very, very high expectations about the way certain things would turn out. I read an interview you had in a magazine wherein the interviewer stated that they were trying to originally, as they were preparing for your interview, they were going to deliberately avoid asking you about being an African-American designer because it seemed to be irrelevant that you're a designer and that's that. And then they decided that they weren't sure if that was the right thing to do, and they asked you anyway, and you stated, it's not irrelevant because it's not irrelevant, period, meaning that whenever you are African-American in a business, that is not. It is one of those things that you're conscious of and aware of. It's pretty rare that I still go to any design function, and maybe there's one other person in the group of 100-plus people. It's a hard business to break into. And when I read that, I realized that I could say the same thing about African-American graphic designers. There are a few more now than there ever used to be, but they're still hugely, hugely underrepresented in the discipline as well. And I'm wondering if, if you have any sort of hypothesis as to why there are so few African-American graphic designers and interior designers. You know, historically, you know, these were not um, professions that we really had a lot of access to, and they certainly weren't professions that our parents' generations had access to. So I think uh, a lot of, uh, certainly for my parents, I think um, the goal was that, you know, they, they wanted me to do 
whatever it was that I wanted to do ultimately. But I think they were concerned about, you know, job security and me being able to support myself. And so I think, uh, you know, it wasn't really until sort of my generation that we've had really the luxury to sort of pick and choose a lot of, you know, different professions that certainly my parents didn't have the luxury of choosing just because it wasn't something that we knew a lot about and had a lot of exposure to. So I think a lot of people are very conservative in in that regard. So it's not something that we are, um, you know, kind of raised thinking, okay, you're going to be a graphic designer or I think, you know. too close to artist, I guess. Yeah, it's just, (laughs) It falls under the category of, you know, sort of starving artists. Reckless. Um, and, uh, and I think for, you know, many people of a certain generation, you know, the goal is to be self-sufficient financially. And maybe that's not the best uh, route to take in order to uh, make that happen. You didn't originally go to school for interior design. You went to Brown University and graduated and ended up working at Bloomingdale's. Right. That's correct. I think, um, you know, I went to Brown. I did not know um, what I wanted to do when I graduated. My goal at the time was to work in advertising. Uh, This was the mid-80s. And for me, the dream job would have been working for, you know, Ogilvy and Mather or J. Walter Thompson or Gray Advertising and probably becoming uh, an account executive. I was always interested in the arts, but I was also interested in business. So at the time, I think that was the only profession that I was sort of familiar with that might enable me to do that. And when I couldn't get a job in advertising, I ended up getting a job and the only thing I really had some practical work experience in, and that was retail. I had worked in a clothing store, you know, doing sales. And so that's what led me to that job, uh, the training program. It was a buyer's training program to become a fashion buyer. And um, I hated it, (laughs) to be honest. And then eventually I ended up getting my first design job, and that was through a classified ad in the New York Times. And your parents were not happy with your decision to work in interior design. I actually love to go back for a moment to talk about your experience at Bloomingdale's. The anecdote that you tell is both heartbreaking and then wonderfully vindictive. (laughs) Oh, you mean later later (laughs) Later, on? on. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, first of all, I kind of love the fact that you just walked out. You don't like the way you were being treated and you walked out. And I thought, man, was she brave. So, So if you could share with our listeners how and why you ended up walking out and then what happened happened 20 years later when you kind of walked back in? (laughs) Oh, well, I guess, you know, initially, I just, you know, I just didn't really enjoy the job. And I understand. I mean, that's what you do when you're an assistant and you just graduated from college. And, uh, you know, I spent most of my time either marking down, you know, items for sale or clearance or in the stock room. And but I, I think I worked pretty hard and uh, felt as though, you know, when it was time, when I knew my review was coming up and I was, you know, hoping for promotion to be moved over to the buying office, I guess I would have gotten a position of assistant buyer at that time. I had uh, been in my boss's office and I was, you know, looking for a stock report, I think. And I saw my performance review in her office, like under a bunch of papers. And obviously I was not supposed to be in there and I'm certainly not supposed to be reading, you know, my <laughs> <laughs> my confidential performance review. Yeah, but, no one's uh, ever done that but, before. Uh, yeah, no. And, uh, but of course I did. And so I saw that I was going to be promoted, you know, and, um, 
you know, I kind of prematurely celebrated with my boyfriend, I think, that night. And we lived together and he knew how much I hated my job. And so was constantly telling me, you know, I should quit. And so when I finally went in for my performance review, I didn't get the promotion. I mean, on the paperwork, it said that I was promotable and I knew that, you know, what the process was. And they told me, you know, I wasn't being promoted. And I saw all the there were, I think, check marks or something and different categories um, and everything that it said sort of good or better than average. I don't remember. Excellent. Whatever the categories were, they, they were it was whited out. They were changed. And so I was suddenly not promotable. And it was obvious because the answers to the questions I just you know read the day before, you know, had been <laughs> changed. So um, I was devastated by that. And I think I walked out of my review and sat in the stock room and cried. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, there was a one person who worked in the department that I worked in that I didn't like very much. And, you know, he just came up to me and told me that it was time for me to, you know, start marking down more items or <laughs> I, I don't remember, whatever it was. I don't know. I just ended up leaving the store, which I, I can't even imagine myself doing something like that now. But I, I literally walked out the employee entrance and didn't come back. I so. was cheering every moment of that yeah. on. <laughs> so you made a career switch. You uh, took a job that you found through the Sunday New York Times Classifieds as an administrative assistant at a small, prestigious architecture firm. That's correct. Um, you put all of your belongings in storage. You attended classes at night and on the weekends in interior design at Parsons. You took out your first student loans. You sold all the designer clothes off your back to your friends. So did you realize once you started working at this architecture firm that interior design was what you knew you wanted to do for the rest of your life? I did. I mean, it's something clicked for me for the very first time, I think, professionally. Um, you know, I'd had a few different jobs, and I just never felt particularly inspired or kind of connected to both the people that I worked with, as well as the actual work that I was doing. And for the first time, I you know, found myself surrounded by people that I really respected, that I felt were incredibly intelligent, were passionate about what they did for a living. And, um, uh, you know, I think some of that is is contagious. And so it was a great opportunity for me to really learn a lot about the business, how you actually, you know, start a business, run a business and sustain a business, particularly, you know, when you're in an industry that very closely follows the economy. So I didn't realize it at the time, but it was really a blessing that I, you know, had the opportunity to learn so much about other parts of the business, the non-creative and kind of not non-fun parts of the design business. You've said that you like to design low-maintenance homes for high-maintenance people. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's just design. It's a lot of work. It's not what it seems. I like to design interiors that are, you know, fairly timeless, that you don't, that there's not a lot of fuss involved and that there's some longevity in the work that I do, at least I hope so. Um, and that if you have a very, very busy, hectic, drama-filled, high-maintenance life, hopefully the, the work that I do is just kind of a quiet backdrop to all of that. You also talk about that there's a lot of humdrum, dull, detailed work in being an interior designer. What would you say is the lead gene in being a great interior designer? 
one thing that is extremely important is just being a good listener. I, I think it's just really important that, um, you know, as designers, we, we listen to our clients. It's not really about me. It's about them. And you have to really take the time to get to know your clients and and learn about their lifestyle, learn about you know, what they like, what they don't like, sometimes very difficult kind of nuances of their lives. But, you know, we're privy to be a part of that. And I think the more that you listen and uh, not try to sort of put forth your own agenda or your own sort of design aesthetic stamp of approval, whatever it is on their space, the better, I think, the end result um, for the job. And I think the other thing, too, is just being versatile or flexible. And I think that's just a kind of an important quality to have as an entrepreneur because things are always going to change, you know, in terms of the way business is. And, and you have to be adaptable, I think, to some degree to be able to meet those changes over the years if you're going to sustain a business. So in 2001, Shaley, you landed a celebrity client, President Bill Clinton. Yeah, that's true. You were chosen to decorate his then new Harlem offices. How did you get that job? Well, um, let's see. I heard that he was, you know, after he'd been in office, he was moving to New York. And then there's sort of rumors that he was actually going to open his offices in Harlem. And it was actually my father who suggested that I pursue that job. And I, and I just remember uh, him saying, you know, I don't know why you why you wouldn't. I think you would be the perfect person, you know, to work with him, especially and that you're you're based in Harlem. And so kind of with that, I, I actually did sort of pursue it. And so how do you pursue I, I, the so, president? Yeah, so, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I've never really done things in a, in a pretty you know regular way if there's such a thing. But so I, I think what I did was to think of anyone uh, who I knew who was connected to him on on any level. So I think there was you know, somebody had dated who worked on Capitol Hill, who maybe worked for Ted Kennedy. Then there was I um, had a friend who um, was uh, a doctor who worked with um, Vernon Jordan. There were, you know, just I kind of tried to hit it from all sides, just anyone and everyone, you know, that I could sort of come up with who knew him. And I figured that the more he was sort of bombarded, uh, you know, or heard my name over and over and over again from all of these different sources the more likely he would be to actually consider me to work on his offices. And I think, you know, ultimately it was a, a win-win, I think, for everyone. You know, for him, because he came to Harlem and hadn't been in New York, and certainly that was not the area of the city that most people expected him to be. I had been in Harlem for many years and obviously was uh, at that time, you know, a well-known designer. So I think it was a good fit, you know, for him to use someone locally within the the Harlem community. So the, the tabloid media went crazy. Yes, um, you were on the cover, I think, of the Inquirer. It was the with Globe, I think. I the was Globe in the Globe several with times. Oprah's Alien Baby, baby right, new Jean Benet crime scene yes, photos, yes. and you. That's true. That is true. <laughs> because of your being chosen My, to do yes, this. Right, exactly. You stated that the one thing that was great about working with 
President Clinton was that he was extremely decisive. Yes. So in what way? Was it was it more like, I don't care, you make the decision? Or was it, yes, I want that? No, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, given, you know, if you're commander in chief, I mean, you can you hope that you could actually make a decision, particularly if it comes to, you know, this fabric or that fabric. You know, it's just not that difficult if you're comparing it to something else that, you know, I'm sure that he'd handled during the presidency. So, you know, he was just very clear about, um, you know, about his taste and what he liked and, you know, certain colors that obviously spoke to him more than others. And um, he was just very clear and very straightforward. And, and I appreciated that because a lot of times clients will look at something and think about it. And then they want to see another 15 choices and then another 15 choices. And I wasn't presented with any of that in dealing with the former president. Were you nervous or intimidated in any way? The one time I met President Clinton, I, I actually said to him, and I regret you know, regret this for the rest of my life. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most exciting moment of my life. You actually said that? I said that to wow. him. Wow. I know. How embarrassing. I was, yeah. No, I'm kidding. But no, it was her- no, it's terrible. I, no, it's no. But uh, I'm sure a lot of people probably say it to me. No, I mean, he is, you know, I mean, incredibly charismatic. And yeah, but it was, yeah, it was a little bit intimidating. It was probably a lot intimidating. Um <laughs> But, you know, there was always a lot of entourage. I mean, you know, we're always, you know, surrounded by Secret Service and a lot of staff. And, uh, you know, if we went to showrooms to look at things, we couldn't do it during, um, you know, regular business hours. So it's not like you were going to you know, run into us at the D&D building at, you know, <laughs> 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Looking um, at some bathroom tile. Right, exactly. Right. But, you know, showrooms would stay open later in the evening. And that's kind of when we, you know, took care of most things. So, so the year is 2004. Your career is in the stratosphere. You're the star of a popular television show. You have product lines. You have type A suitors, as you refer to them, high-maintenance clients. And then your hair begins to fall out. Yes. What what happened? Right. I was um, diagnosed with alopecia areata, which is a very, very common uh, autoimmune skin condition, which affects anywhere between four and five million people in the United States. And men, women, children, it doesn't matter, you know, sort of what race. Um, You know, it was just something I'd never heard of before or paid much attention to. Um, Although now, of course, you know, I see people all the time and kind of recognize both men and women who have alopecia. But at the time, it wasn't something I knew anything about. You know, I'd always been very healthy and I certainly had a lot of hair and... um, And gorgeous hair. uh, Like stunningly beautiful hair. Thank you. But um, so I had... uh, I was going to a black tie dinner or something and I decided to get my hair blown out. And so I went to the hairdresser. My hairdresser noticed that I had these two little tiny round patches at the back of my head and uh, spun me around and with another mirror and I saw them. So, you know, the next day I called my dermatologist and, uh, you know, went in and just thought it was going to be something, you know, really basic. I don't know, ringworm. I had no idea what it was, but I certainly didn't think that. And I mean, it literally, it took him 10 seconds to to diagnose it. I mean, it's that common. And, uh, you know, there was no panic about it uh, because, for a lot of people, um, you know, it kind of reverses itself. And there are all kinds of drugs and things that are available to treat it. You know, I tried a few, but, you know, the main ones were were very painful. They were steroid uh, injections kind of into the site. So you would get all these needles in your head in the bald patches. And then what, what it would do is sort of force your hair to grow. 
but then I'd get another patch somewhere else, and then that would grow in, and then I'd get one somewhere else. So, you know, I felt as though I was just sort of being stalked by this thing, and I didn't want to take you know, some of the oral steroids and some of the other drugs that I think would have affected, you know, whether it would have been my liver or my kidneys, um, various things. I mean, I tried, you know, acupuncture. I mean, I sort of did everything. Um, you did everything. I, I did, and I sort of outline a lot of that in the book yes. because everyone had an opinion about, you know, how to stop making my hair fall out. So, And you write it in, it's it's heartbreaking in knowing that the, that you're going through this, but it's also hysterically funny the way you write about all of these yeah, lotions I mean, you and know, potions. Right. And, I mean, and some of it was funny. It was just more the absurdity of it all. And, um, but I just felt as though, you know, kind of the more people tried to help, almost the more withdrawn I became because I just felt as though I was disappointing everyone. You know, I'd have lunch with friends and they, you know, open their bag and say, here, I've bought you a bottle of this shampoo and conditioner and it's like $90 a bottle. And my hairdresser, I bought it from her and she said that, you know, her cousin had it and it worked. And I just felt as though, you know, I was just constantly sort of disappointing people that I just felt like, okay, this isn't going to work. I know this isn't going to work. And then, you know, I made the decision to to shave my head. And that was really to take back some level of control. So by doing that, I didn't have to stress, you know, every day when I washed my hair in the shower, you know, oh, how much hair am I going to lose today or what's going to happen? If I shaved it off, then I didn't have to think about it anymore. So I did that. And I think I was pretty comfortable about the decision to shave my head. But what I found out was that the rest of the world wasn't so comfortable with my, you know, personal decision to shave my head. You state that going bald is much harder than being bald. I, you know, I think particularly for women, uh, you know, there's just so much um, pressure, I think, that we have as women in terms of just the standards of, of beauty that are just kind of, you know, unrealistic, unattainable. Um, but to be um, a middle-aged woman and particularly working in a very visual, you know, medium and, and also, you know, like I'm on television – and then to have something that was, you know, very, very private happen in such a visually public way was very, very hard. And you withdrew for a while. You wrote that grief replaced your lucrative career, the one in front of the TV cameras that kept you in pages of all the glossy magazines. Um, grief required that you lie in bed all day, every day, until further notice. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was just... Um, I just felt as though I needed a time out. And I'm the kind of person who sort of, you know, whatever I commit to, I commit to it. So, you know, if I was going to be sad or melancholy, whatever it was at that time, you know, I was... Full throttle. Yeah, 100% there and committed to grieving. And, you know, one of the things I did learn sort of later on um, is that, you know, anytime you lose anything, you know, in your life, whether it's a person... You know, whether it's your hair, you know, could be a breast, whatever it is, the way that you see yourself through the other side is by acknowledging, you know, what it is that's important to you that you've lost. And I think for a lot of people who have alopecia, you know, because it's not life threatening, the attitude is, oh, it's not really a big deal. Uh, and, and I always tell people, no, it's actually, it is really a big deal. How and, is it not uh, a big deal? Well, because, you know, people always say, well, but you could have, you know, you could have cancer and lose your hair, you know, or, um, you know, I've had a lot of 
people who have lost their hair because they've had, uh, you know, chemo or radiation. And many of them have said to me, you know, I was like less concerned. I was more concerned about losing my hair than I was about the cancer. It's a really big deal, I think, um, because our society makes it such a big deal. Well, a lot of people also thought you had cancer. Yes. So that was just, you know, the number one assumption, which was a little bit disturbing. I mean, I I get it, but it was still disturbing. I think, you know, I was not somebody who Googled myself often. But then, you know, after I started to get these phone calls, you know, if I put my name in a Google search, the number one search that came up after Sheila Bridges was Sheila Bridges cancer. So, you know, and I think at some point my mother um, did that or somebody said something to her and she called me, you know, on the phone and said, you know, you didn't tell me that you had cancer. I'm like, I don't have cancer. <laughs> but she didn't really understand how that, you know, how that works or whatever with Google. But um, yeah, so I realized, wow, you know, there are a lot of people out here who really think that I'm sick. And the problem was I wasn't sick. So There was a part in the book that I completely related to in terms of thinking that whenever anything bad happens, we sort of blame ourselves for the bad things. And you kept asking yourself what you had done wrong to right. sort of bring this on. Right. And you write, whatever I had done wrong, I wanted my hair back. Maybe Miss Universe was willing to barter. Could we make an exchange so she could return my femininity? I offered to return everything she had ever given me, the nice homes, the cars, the money, the lifestyle. She told me she didn't want any of it, that I should just fuck off. So I did what she said and fucked off. I stopped asking questions and just lay there day into night, night into day, wrapped in my sheets and blanket, my aching body twisted like a soft pretzel. I don't mean to laugh, but every time I think about the soft, because I love soft pretzels. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but um, but so and that that just came to mind so quickly to me when I was writing because I don't know, it just, you know, that I'm familiar with that pretzel shape, I guess. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I mean, I think we do all sort of question, you know, when things happen to us, you know, what did we do to deserve this? And I don't think I did anything. I just think that's, you know. That's, Isn't that that's, interesting how we think that, yeah, though? Yeah, I think we all we all do. But that's, you know, what life is. Obviously want to talk to you about sort of overcoming some of that grief. Um, but it seemed that even before you started to lose your hair, you began questioning your lifestyle. You began questioning what was important to you. You were questioning why were you so busy? What was the reason you were sort of driving yourself so right. hard? And you refer to yourself as having an amazing lifestyle, but no life. Right. I was on the path that I think a lot of women are in in terms of you know being taught that we can sort of have it all if such a thing exists. But I think for me, it was causing a lot of sort of stress in my life and unhappiness because it just didn't seem achievable. Um, And I thought like, okay, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good at this stuff. This is just a lot of work to do all this and maintain all this. Um, You know, so I sometimes found myself wishing for things to be a little bit simpler, you know, as they were before I had all the, quote, you know, things that sort of symbolize success. Um, And, uh, you know, around the same time or that I was diagnosed with um, alopecia. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so watching that process with him, I think, also started to make me kind of reflect about, you know, what was most important and, um, you know, so. I was struck by what you wrote about having it all and describing it as 
possibly one gigantic, elaborately constructed sexist Ponzi scheme we were sold on since we were little girls, one that robbed us of any significant returns on our emotional investment. You don't really talk to your male friends, and you talk about this in the book, clamoring on like crabs, as you put it, um, talking about having it all. It's really a very female-centered subject. I mean, I think part of it is that actually, you know, I feel like men sort of do have it all because because of women, you know, because <laughs> women are doing it all next to their husbands or next to the man. So in a way, a lot of times men can sort of have it all, meaning they could have a brilliant career, but also be, you know, supported by somebody and have a family and all these things sort of taken care of and handled. But I feel like as a woman, it's a lot harder to actually do that because it just is structured differently for women than it's ever been structured for men. So I just think for women, it's impossible. But anytime I turn on any reality TV show, you know, and there's women, you know, everybody talks about how they have it all. And, you know, I just Mm. sort of laugh to myself. Yeah, I, I love the question you ask. How come you never see men on Oprah all choked up as they talk about desperately vying for having it all? Exactly. Um, how did you end up being able to overcome your grief? How did you get out of bed? I just, you know, I had to kind of give in to that process. And uh, a lot of times, you know, we just don't want to be sad. You know, everything is about being happy and having a great time. And I think I just, you know, I had to trust the same way I trust that things will work out or, or trust in positive things. I just had to sort of trust in my sadness that it was okay to be sad and that at some point I was going to be ready to not grieve anymore or not be sad and actually get out of bed. And, you know, it was just a lot of heavy lifting. There was just a lot and I felt really sad. But I just knew that if I, you know, surrounded myself with people that cared about me, um, I also, you know, went into therapy. I started to see a psychologist to sort of help um, kind of dismantle, you know, the grief, I guess, on some level. And I also wrote, um, which was, you know, something that she suggested to get a handle on it. Um, you know, I had been very, very shy um, when I was a child. And, you know, sometimes I didn't feel comfortable sharing the things that I felt, um, you know, with friends or with family, but I could write about it. And, and I think that that actually, that helped a lot. You talk about being comfortable in your own skin and and living an authentic life and having the courage to move away from the expectation that everyone has of you. Was that difficult? Do you find that that was an arduous process or did it happen more organically as you were going through your grief? I think it it happened uh, more organically, but I think it's always hard. Um, You know, the people who care about us or the people who have – the greatest expectations of who we should be, what we should become, how we should behave, how we should look. I think the more I really listened to my own voice, you know, usually most things turned out okay. So, but I think, you know, during that process, when I lost my hair, I sort of, you know, I did. It affected my confidence. And and then I just thought, oh, maybe my judgment, you know, is off or my intuition is off. Uh, but I start to just sort of trust my gut again. And I think that's part of of being able to hopefully live a more authentic life and and not be so concerned about, you know, everyone else's expectations. 
In the epilogue of The Bald Mermaid, you say that writing your memoir was less about being the center of attention and more about finding the missing pieces of your life. What did you discover in the process? Well, I discovered... um uh, that it was okay to not only be um, a strong person, which I think everybody sort of thought I was, but for the first time that it's actually kind of a strength to actually be vulnerable. And that was something that I had never really kind of um, uh, just get close to. I just, you know, I think at some point I talk about, you know, my vulnerability becoming kind of this intimate companion um, that I had never kind of had any experiences with before. So that was something that I think the process, um, you know, helped me discover about myself that actually being vulnerable just opened up a lot of other things for me. I think, um, you know, my ability to do that now. Thank you so much for coming on Design Matters, Sheila. Thank you for writing this marvelous book, The Bald Mermaid. Thank you. To learn more about Sheila Bridges and to see examples of her magnificent work, visit SheilaBridges.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. Remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This episode is supported in part by lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials. With lynda.com, you can learn software, creative, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. Try it free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash designobserver. That's lynda.com slash designobserver. Support is also provided by Shutterstock, home of over 25 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. If you are looking for images for your website, blog, app, or print project, Shutterstock makes it easy. Visit Shutterstock.com to get 30% off any package with offer code DESIGN30. That's DESIGN30 for 30% off at Shutterstock.com. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and Pike Malinowski. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.